Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where the events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. This is the 361st show of ROI, and our noted guest for today's show is E.J. Dion. Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution, a syndicated columnist for the Washington Post, and a university professor in the Foundations of Democracy and Culture at Georgetown University. Uh, Mr. Dion is going to talk to us about his book, Red, How Many Progressives and Moderates Can Unite to Save Our Country? The history book for today's show is Ed Broder's. The show's song is titled Kayla's Theme. Written and performed by Mark Zapzapto. Our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. This is the opening segment of the show called Farut Dunarin, and today we'll be talking about the book Code Red, How Progressives and Moderates Can Unite to Save Our Country, with E.J. Dion, Jr., Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institute, a syndicated columnist for the Washington Post, and University Professor in the Foundations of Democracy and Culture at Georgetown University. EJ, first of all, thanks for being on our show. It's great to be with you. And as I told you before the show, I am a big fan of Davenport, Iowa, and was just there uh, in January or early February before the caucuses. It's a great town. Well, and thank you very much. So uh, the first question we're going to ask you may be easier, difficult, uh, but we can you give us a definition of what conservatives, moderates, and progressives mean? What I'd like to do, because we could spend several hours on that, which would be kind of fun, but probably not for your listeners, um, is I'd like to do that in in the context of the book, if I could. Um, Sure. Because, you know, conservatism has meant very different things at different times in our country's history, let alone in the history of the world. And there there are kind of Burkean conservatives, and those are the kinds of conservatives I like best, who are basically people who want to preserve institutions and are skeptical of um, progressives or liberals like me who come along with big changes and they say, wait a minute, you ought to value the institutions and look out for unintended consequences. That, to me, is the kind of conservatism that can be actually very constructive in a political system because you can have a real argument about how to solve problems. And those kind of conservatives following Edmund Burke uh, knew that you needed reform in order to preserve your institutions. So they're not reactionaries. They're not people who oppose all reform. Um, They're people who are a little bit skeptical of change. What conservatism has become in the country and what I argue in the book is that it's been radicalized in two different directions. One in the Trumpian direction, um, which has it's come to mean it could be connected to uh, xenophobia and either outright racism in some cases or uh, certainly racial backlash uh, in other cases, and a certain uh, authoritarian attitude, which is quite different from what small government conservatives always agreed uh, with. And then on the other side, even without Trump, I think conservatism has been radicalized by being so profoundly skeptical of what government can do to solve problems that it has uh, given up 
on a great tradition inside the Republican Party, um, represented by Lincoln, who gave us the land-grant colleges, and Teddy Roosevelt, who gave us the national parks, and Dwight Eisenhower, who gave us the interstate highways and the federal stu- first federal student uh, aid program through the National Defense Education Act. I argue that because of this radicalization of conservatism, uh, progressives and moderates are now natural allies because whatever they disagree on, uh, progressives uh, and uh, moderates believe in using government to solve problems, uh, progressives more aggressively. Uh, They agree that a problem like climate change requires urgent action, even if they uh, disagree on the exact means. They agree, for example, that all Americans should have health insurance, uh, even if uh, progressives, uh, people on the left, want to do it through a single-payer plan, and more moderate people would prefer to build on Obamacare with a public option and other measures. Um, and a lot of people who are once Republican are no longer in the Republican Party, and I argue in the book that one of the reasons, because of this radicalization, and I argue that one of the reasons that the Democratic Party has so many arguments going on within it is because a lot of the arguments that used to take place between Republicans and Democrats are now all being carried out among more moderate uh, Democrats and more progressive Democrats. And so I argue at this moment in history, um, the first line of the book is, will progressives and moderates feud while the country burns? At this moment in history, they have to come together to get us out of both the Trump period in this period of a radicalized conservatism, and I'm hoping that if that happens, um, there will be a, a moment inside the Republican Party and within the conservative movement where they look to their consciences, look to what happened to them and say, if only for political reasons, but I also would like to think for larger reasons, they say, we've got to get off the path we're on and move back toward the kind of conservatism that is actually constructive. Okay, um, EJ, I have a question for you. Um, in, I'm older than 50, and when I was a kid, too, a growing up with the Republicans in Iowa, uh, um, proper spending of budgets and deficit spending was a huge concern. Uh, they were known as the budget hawk. And now because of the new Republican mold, whether it's the two that you said, it seems to me that uh, watching the budget or spending money conservatively has been happening in the party for decades is out the window. Um, what, do you thought brought, what do you think brought that about? I, I, to say that it was just Trump I don't think is realistic, although I think he's got a big say in it. How do you interpret it? Well, actually, I think if uh, we really want to look at it, you can go back to Ronald Reagan, because that's when Ronald Reagan cut taxes so sharply and revenues, the deficit was growing so quickly that even Ronald Reagan had to sign a tax increase to take some of that tax cut back. But the deficits were still growing. And uh, it's ironic, given the Republicans claim that they are the party of uh, small deficits at the one time we were in surplus was under uh, Bill Clinton. I'll grant you with a uh, Republican uh, Congress. Nonetheless, I think Republicans become deficit hawks when Democrats get to the White House. 
because Republicans, as they showed with this huge corporate tax cut that they passed, they have no compunction about growing the deficit if it means tax cuts. What bothers them is when Democrats want to do things like extend health insurance to everybody. And by the way, Obamacare was paid for by tax increases um, so that it was actually fiscally uh, responsible. So I think the Republican Party actually gave up on deficit hawkness a long time ago, but they talked about it a lot. And they talked about it especially when Bill Clinton and Barack Obama were president. Um, EJ, so John asked the economic question. I'm going to ask the, the social question. Um, and I want to turn a little bit to moderates and progressives. We, you said that, that the two have slightly different ways of approaching uh, the same problem, but they're, they're both sort of going for the same goals. Why do moderates and progressives seem to struggle to coalesce um, together and, and form a united front? Well, you know, we've had throughout our history, and the book has, one of the reasons I'm happy to be on your show, uh, besides the fact that you guys are wonderful, is because of your focus on history, which I really appreciate. And, um, you know, the first, uh, there are two, two of the key chapters in the book are historical. One on the changes in the Republican Party and conservatism, the other on progressives. And the, the chapter on progressives, uh, broadly speaking, progressivism, which included moderates and people on the left. And the chapter is called Progressivism's Crooked Path, A Short History of Circular Firing Squads and Enduring Achievements. And I think that at some moments in our history, progressives and moderates have been at each other's throats, and that's when they failed. And there were other moments when they came together and said, look, we want to solve the same problems. We are all broadly in a camp that can be called, in the largest sense, progressive, and we want to move forward. And I offer some examples that, you know, when FDR uh, was president, FDR um, was certainly a liberal, but he was a cautious liberal um, in, many, in many respects. And he, but he did have the support of the labor movement. And I talk in the book about a figure uh, like Sidney Hillman, who was the uh, political, basically the political guy within the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, uh, the most uh, left of center part of the labor movement. And Sidney Hillman and Roosevelt had a very constructive relationship where Hillman and the CIO would give Roosevelt critical support against his conservative enemies, but they would push him really hard in a more progressive direction uh, when they didn't think he was being progressive enough. Similarly, uh, Lyndon Johnson and John F. Kennedy needed the pressure from Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement uh, to um, move forward uh, on civil rights. Martin Luther King had the Great March on Washington in 1963, because he was trying to bring pressure to bear on John Kennedy, uh, because he didn't think Kennedy was moving quickly enough on civil rights. Now, I think the relationship between the two sides, the more moderate side or the, the governing side and the movement side, went really sour during uh, the Vietnam War. I think that's when you saw the beginning of a very dysfunctional relationship between, if you will, the left and a governing center. 
And um, we've had moments where they where it came back together. I think it came back together to some degree in the first couple of years of the Obama administration when, you know, progressives who wanted a much more extensive uh, and radical change in our health system nonetheless supported Obamacare as at least a step in the right direction. They wanted more aggressive action on Wall Street, but they supported Dodd-Frank uh, to put some regulation on, um, you know, speculation that really helped cause uh, the great crash of 2008. So we've had moments where they've been at each other's throats. We've had moments uh, when they work together. What I'm, I wrote the book because I said if there was ever a time when they should work together, and if there was ever someone who could bring them together, uh, it was Donald Trump. And so I think this is a moment when they have to look at those parts of their history uh, when they did a lot of good for the country. Okay. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned to the next segment of ROI. Uh, this is ROI, KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. KALA, 88.5 FM, the radio station with the most diversity in the Quad City region. Jazz, blues, R&B, hip-hop, Spanish and Hispanic programming, gospel, new rock, oldies, news, and shows addressing local community issues. And the world's best in entertainment and news from Public Radio International. Here's something different on KALA, 88.5 FM, the most diverse radio station in the Quad City region. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where the events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. This is the second segment of our show, which is referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is E.J. Dion, Jr., Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institute, a syndicated columnist for the Washington Post, and university professor in Foundations of Democracy and Culture at Georgetown University. And today we're talking about his book, Code Red, How Progressive Moderates Can Unite to Save Our Country. Our history buff for today's show is Ed Broders. Ed, you get the first question. Thank you, John. Um, EJ, um, can you give us an update? Uh, no doubt the events of the last month um, have radically changed, um, you know, the political outlet or at least the, the ability of Trump's opponents to find um, uh, a, a public outlet, uh, given the, the single item that's in the news. Um, does the media owe it? to uh, the interest of democracy to seek out Joe Biden and others uh, and give them a podium? Um, I, I think there is some obligation to give uh, Biden, and, and he's still in the race, Bernie Sanders, a bit more of a public voice, although you do have Andrew Cuomo, who's kind of, for the, uh, per, for the duration at least of this period, been a pretty strong voice on the other side. I think the crisis itself, I wrote a column uh, a couple of weeks ago where I argued that a pandemic makes everybody a bit more socialist. Uh, and it does that because all of us have an interest in the health of each of us. 
that it's a really bad thing when uh, people can't afford a coronavirus test. It's a really bad thing when there are a lot of people who cannot go see a doctor if they are sick because they don't have health insurance. And it's a really bad thing we learn when a public health problem, I mean, a virus uh, does not respond to tax cuts or economic incentives. A virus just spreads absolutely everywhere to rich and poor alike. Um, and in a period like this, um, economic, the, the economic effect of this brings everybody down at the same time. And sadly for our country, we're seeing that collapse. So I think this and then it led Republicans in Congress uh, to vote for the most massive stimulus bill um, in the history of the country. It's really an economic rescue bill. Um, but they were unhappy with President Obama's $785 billion stimulus bill. This is a $2.2 trillion uh, stimulus bill. Um, so to, answer, to go back uh, to your question, it would be good if there were, I think, more uh, time given to the opposition, given that President Trump is using uh, these so-called briefings, and they are briefings once the medical officials start talking, but he's using them as a kind of a substitute for a campaign rally. Having said that, I think we're eventually going to get back to a campaign, and I think we're also going to get to the point, um, I think you're already starting to see it, where uh, Congress is going to, at least Democrats in Congress, are going to start trying to hold Trump accountable for the mistakes that have been made uh, that helped worsen this crisis. He wasn't obviously responsible for the virus itself. He is responsible for not taking it seriously at the beginning and for a lot of other missteps since. Okay. Well, EJ, along those, yeah, along those lines, EJ, I'm, I'm curious to see if you think um, the, the message or, or the ambitions for this progressive moderate alliance you're hoping for will be changed by um, the uh, pandemic when when the nation begins gets to the other side of this thing and and starts to um, to emerge. Do you think they'll be more ambitious that that they'll, they'll be a, a more progressive um, agenda and, and maybe a little less of a moderate one? Well, I think that, you know, what you're seeing, it, it, when you when you looked at the debate over putting this rescue package together, you actually saw in action what I was arguing for in the book. You really had someone like Joe Manchin, uh, you know, a moderate or even moderately conservative Democrat from West Virginia, uh, in many ways on the same side as Elizabeth Warren. He was, uh, he spoke up, Manchin spoke up very forcefully arguing that Republicans, he felt, were paying, in their original version of this rescue package, uh, were paying far more too much attention to corporations compared uh, to the interests of localities, of the unemployed, of the health system. Um, and when Elizabeth Warren pushed for um, some accountability uh, measures uh, in the corporate part of the uh, rescue um, people like Manchin and more more moderate Democrats or, or Mark Warner of Virginia said, yeah, we're for that, too. Uh, so I think you have seen a certain coming together. Uh, but also, I think you know, what I worry about most is when you look at the unemployment claims, uh, you know, the first week, three million, the second week, six million. 
Um, we are going to be, I think, in a very difficult economic circumstance for a long time. And it is under such circumstances that people turn to government for creative solutions. It was a Republican. He later went to work for Bill Clinton. But when he was a senator, Bill Cohen of Maine said, uh, said, and I always love this quote, I was interviewing him actually one day, and he said, government is the enemy until you need a friend. Um, and I think at a moment like this, uh, people realize, you know, people you know, agree with that. And, you know, the second, by the way, is there's a lot of attacks on experts. Well, when you look at a problem like this, this experts are these terrible, awful elitists until you need them to explain to you and help you figure out a very complicated problem. Uh, so I think this will um, change us. But as um, you know, I, I think that it's always dangerous in the middle of a crisis like this to pretend to know what it's going to be like on the other side. I don't begin to know, given how earth-shattering this is, how, how shattering this is for the country to really know what it's going to look like on the other side. But I think the, you know, the historical lessons are that people will look for uh, some creativity on the part of government to try to pull us out of um, you know, the mess we're going to be in. Okay. Um, EJ, uh, we talked about Democrats. We talked about Republicans, conservatives, moderates, uh, progressives. I'm going to ask you to look into the crystal ball with independence. Uh, some polls have come out that said that um, the shift in independence, at least for now in the last two weeks, although you're right, the 6 million unemployed, that, that statistic had not come out that they tend to be leaning towards uh, President Trump in the direction that he is taking the nation. Uh, where do they fit into this equation? Uh, they're always a very difficult bunch to read. And, um, again, we don't if you, make a, if you make an educated guess and you're wrong, we don't hold you to it. But what do you think their impact is going to be? Well, I always say that I uh, turned in my membership card in the prognosticators union at about midnight on election night, 2016. Uh, and so I just want to warn everybody about that. Um, you know, a couple of things about the polls. One is um, that it's really striking. Yes. Trump has gotten a little bump. It's not an enormous bump in approval. It's a little bump. And when you compare this sort of rally round the flag effect with so many others in the past, whether you're talking about Jimmy Carter at the beginning of the hostage crisis or George W. Bush at, you know, after 9-11, this is a really, really tiny shift. And that when you compare the Bush, uh, Trump's approval numbers uh, with the approval numbers of the governors fighting the crisis, Trump is still 20 points lower than they are. The second thing is, the um, the Biden Trump numbers really haven't changed all that much. There are a couple of polls that show the race tightening, but there are others that show Biden ahead by five, six, seven, eight points. Uh, the you know the the average right now is about five or six points in Biden's favor. So even with that very modest improvement in his approval rating. By, uh, uh, Trump is still not running ahead of Biden. The other thing I'd say about independence, and this is uh, probably for another conversation, there was a great book uh, written some years ago called The Myth of the Independent Voter. Um, when you press independence and people call themselves independent, 
um, and ask if they leaned toward more toward one party or the other. Most of them lean either Republican or Democratic. And independents who admit to, to a lean one way or the other vote just about as faithfully for that party as people who actually call themselves uh, Republicans and Democrats. So they are a, a smaller group than they turn up in the polls that don't try to pull out the more uh, Republican or more Democratic independents. Ed, do you have another question? Yeah. Um, EJ, um, can you tell us the answer to the question, or to explain to us uh, in respect to the title of the book, how can progressives and moderates unite? Can you give us the short conclusion? Right, well, the, the, short, the short conclusion is they can unite if they come to see that their interests coincide far more with each other than with the people they oppose. If you are a Bernie Sanders supporter and believe that uh, the country has to do a lot more about climate change and the world, for that matter, have to do a lot more about climate change, and you end up with a choice between Biden and Trump, uh, do you think that Biden or Trump, are, which one of those will do more about climate? And if you are a Sanders supporter, upon which of those folks will you have the capacity to bring more pressure? The guy in your party where you, you have a support of at least a third of the party or the guy in the other party? Um, maybe you want free college uh, in public universities for everybody the way Bernie Sanders does. Um, well, Joe Biden is already for, I'm using them as the obvious examples at this moment, uh, Joe Biden is for free community college, and he's actually uh, more open to expanding beyond that. And by the way, we should also talk a lot more than we do uh, about the folks who aren't necessarily college-bound but could earn decent incomes uh, if we paid a lot more attention to apprenticeships and job training after high school. Um, on issue after issue, moderates and progressives, when they get down to it, are far more likely to work uh, with each other. And by the way, that's also true of people who once upon a time were moderate Republicans. If you look at many of the new members of Congress elected in 2018 in that big Democratic sweep, if you look at Democratic members of the House, a lot of them would have been uh, moderate Republicans probably 30, 40 years ago. They represent a suburbanish districts that used to elect middle-of-the-road uh, Republicans. And I actually met with uh, some of them after the election, and I looked at them and I joked with them. I said, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you know, a bunch of you would have been Republican, and half of them were offended at the very thought they'd ever be Republican. Uh, but the other half looked at me and said, yeah, you're probably right. We could have been uh, moderate Republicans, but moderate Republicans don't exist anymore. <laughs> so All what right, do we do? Well so what do we do about the 50% of Americans that aren't listening to anybody except Trump? Um, well, I actually think the real Trump base is smaller than that. Um, if, if you don't mind my doing, I, I like political numbers, so let me, let me do this one for you. Um, on Election Day 2016, 60% of Americans had an unfavorable view of Donald Trump. You'd think he should have lost the election. Well, on Election Day, 55% of Americans had an unfavorable view of Hillary Clinton. If you take the two groups 
unfavorable to Trump, unfavorable to Clinton, together they constituted 17 percent of the whole electorate. So and that group voted 4730 for Trump. So I the way I do the math is out of Trump's 46 percent, about nine percent of them were way more anti-Clinton than they were pro-Trump. So I think his real base is no more than about 35 percent. And you know what? Uh, I could put my name on a ballot or you could put your name on a ballot with a party next to you. And either of us would probably get 35 or 40 percent. You know, nobody, George, uh, George H.W. Bush, um, you know, got 38 percent with the vote split with, uh, you know, um, when Ross Perot was on the ballot, Barry Goldwater got 39 percent. George McGovern got about 39 percent. In other words, there's just a base party vote that you can't really drop below. Um, what I look at is the 2018 elections in let's just take a look at the states of Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan and Wisconsin, the key swing states in that election. In 2018, those three states each elected a Democrat as governor and a Democrat to the United States Senate. And those Democrats won because 10 to 15 percent of the Trump voters switched over to vote for those uh, Democrats. So there's real swing in this uh, elect in, you know, in the Trump electorate. Now, I'm not going to predict that's exactly what will happen in 2020. But what it does show is the Trump voters are not some big monolithic group who never listen to anybody and never change their minds. And I think that's, um, you know, and that's a good thing for democracy. We, that we, there are a lot of people who are not, um, uh, don't, are not the cliches that uh, there are people who don't like who they voted for might say they are. Okay. Uh, when we come back, we will wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is. Uh, could I just say KDLA. I didn't think Ed was making them into a cliche. I, I was not talking about Ed. <laughs> Don't worry about Ed. Ed. No, but I that were honest and true. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> okay. Uh, when we come back, we'll wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is RRI on KALA St. Ambrose University, one hundred six point one FM. This program, the award-winning Relevant or Irrelevant, is heard Friday evenings at 9.30 p.m. Central Time on KALA HD2 or 106.1 FM in the Quad City area. You can listen over the air or anywhere via TuneIn.com. To hear this program and many other archived editions at any time, visit SoundCloud.com. Search for username KALA Radio. There you'll find Relevant or Irrelevant and many other productions produced at the St. Ambrose University Communications Center. This concludes our 361st show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zapsapital. My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our noted guest, E.J. Dion Jr., Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution, a syndicated columnist for the Washington Post, and university professor in the Foundation of Democracy and Culture at Georgetown University, who talked with us about his book, Code Red, How Progressives and Moderates Can Unite and Save Our Country. 
the history buff for today's show, was Ed Broders. This is ROI, relevant or irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. And we would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Otso Kulanala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Mm-hmm.